Jordan on Jordan Lakes. Okay, this is a shear Leulunish Massam Afram Shmuel Ben Avram Aria Cohen Chaya Tovabas Aliyazam Mendelai Cohen. It's also dedicated to all our soldiers, all our frontline staff, all our medical, all our logistics, all our um, first responders, and all the people of Israel that are doing everything they can to support us, um, and all the non-Jews that are, uh, have come out of the woodwork to support us as well. Uh, this year is dedicated to all those, and uh, it should be a... Um, Marabits Latovo, as they say, should be a, a good sign for the future. Uh, we're in uh, Yechezkel. Um, we're in chapter 13. We're coming to the end of chapter 13. And uh, we've been dealing with uh, false prophets. And um, we're up to verse 14. And now God describes the, the fact that the false prophets have been describing all along that Jerusalem will never be destroyed and we'll all live in peace, and the Babylonians will never break through. And then God lays it down on the line for the false prophets. I will, God says, I'll demolish the wall that you plastered with weak plaster. We'll explain that in a second. Uh, and I'll make it fall to the ground, the walls of Yerushalayim, the Niglo Yisoda, and its foundations, the foundations of Yerushalayim will be exposed, and it will all fall down, and you will perish inside the city, and then you'll know I am God. So, seems to be, as Marvin points out here, there's three stages um, that God is using to break uh, the ideas that were uh, promulgated by these false prophets, three stages of destruction, uh, and in the process eviscerates the optimistic nonsense and lies of the false prophets. First of all, he says, Vahorasti, complete demolition. That language, Vahorasti, is used very rarely in Tadakh, but when it is used, it's, it's ultimate destruction, complete and utter destruction. And the Malvin said, Sai Gimalinyanim. God's describing three consequential events here. Number one, Hirasakir. Firstly, the destruction of the walls of Yushalayim. Shehu hispororosh Which will be disintegrated. But, says the Malvin, it's only the start of the destruction of the city uh, with the breaking of the walls. Secondly, the Posuk says, God says, Vigatihu el it will come tumbling down. Shahoya Hanafila Legamre. After the walls are breached. Uh, secondly, after the walls are breached, the Babylonians will totally um, tear down the walls of Yushalayim. So there'll be nothing left. There'll be absolutely nothing left of the walls of Yushalayim. Uh, just give me a second here. Something's happened to my screen. Uh, yeah, sorry about that. Something came up on my screen. I know what it was. Okay, so again, secondly, after the walls were breached, the Babylonians will totally tear down the walls of Yushalayim. There'll be nothing left. And then thirdly, the Nigla Yisoda, uh, the foundations of Yushalayim, um, will be destroyed. Um, will be exposed. The foundations of the wall will be shown so that nothing remains of the defenses of Yushalayim. Don't think that that will be the end of it. The walls coming down uh, won't cause any human collateral damage. God makes sure you understand this by adding in the verse, but not not only will the walls fall, you'll perish inside of it. Meaning, many people will be crushed to death from the falling masonry, including the false prophets. Then you'll recognize who is behind it all. Uh, That's when you'll recognize that uh, this is all from God, as the Abba Benel adds, 
and uh, the subliminal message uh, to be taken from this type of destructions to Harev Yushalayim below Yelohem Shalom, that all too late they'll realize that what they've been told by these false prophets has been a load of nonsense, and the vision of peace and victory promised by them was also destroyed um, with this, along with the city. So that's that's the uh, that it, the shame of it all is they only realize that the false prophets were talking nonsense after the fact. The, the, the sad thing is they couldn't work it out before. So now we come to, again, my screen's gone crazy. Just give me one second to sort this out. Thank you. Okay, try again. Now we come to verses um, um, 15 and 16. We take verses 15 and 16 together. And God says, I will exhaust my fury on the wall. And on those who plaster it with weak mortar. In other words, on the false prophets who assured everybody that the walls will never fall. But Omalachem ain hakir. And I say to you, that wall isn't here anymore. But ain't hatochim also. Neither are those who plaster it. The wall's not here. The wall that the false prophets said would protect you, that, that's not here. And neither are the false prophets that told you that the wall would protect you. Nevi'a Yisrael hanib, verse 16. Nevi'a Yisrael hanib im al Yerushalayim. The prophets of Israel have prophesied about Jerusalem. Shalom, and those who envision for it a vision of peace, but ain't shalom. God says there'll be no peace. That's the word, the final word of God. So we'll give the last part of the last word in this part of the prophecy to the Abba Renel, who says, I will exhaust my fury on the walls and those who plaster it with mortar. Also, Shaikir remes liushalayim, bahatochim hasheke. The destruction of the wall refers to the city itself. The destruction of those who plaster the wall with weak mortar refers to the false prophets. Shaoz omalochem ein hakir ve'ein hatochim also. So that the final result of God's fury will be the complete destruction of Yushalayim and the death of the false prophets. And Kalama Kavan Nichrava Yushalayim Shiakiv and Nagunaviya Sheker and the end of the fantasy that there would be peace and victory predicted by those false prophets. So that's that up, up to verse seventeen, verses one to sixteen, uh talks exclusively about the false prophets, what will become of them, what their punishment is. Remember they the three punishments that were promised to them as well, those that survived. As it's clear from this part of the prophecy, a lot of them won't survive. But those that do survive, they'll be cut off from the Torah. In other words, their uh, generations will be cut off from Judaism. They'll be cut off from the land of Israel. Um, none of them will be able to return to the land of Israel. And also, they've lost their world to come. They've lost their chance at um, the world to come. Now, in order to lose the right to the world to come, is a pretty difficult task for anybody. Never mind Jews, it's a difficult task for anybody. Every human being is born with a chalet, with a share in the world to come, uh, Jew and Gentile alike. Uh, in order to lose it, um, you've really got to do something absolutely horrendous. Absolutely. You've really go, got to go above and beyond the call of duty to you lose your chalet in Olam Haba, to lose your share in the world to come. But false prophecy is one of those things, false prophecy that leads to false hope and speaking in the name of God when God hasn't said something. So that's something that's guaranteed to lose you your olam haba. What's interesting about Judaism and Christianity is we take the opposite approach to the Christians in relation to the world to come. In Judaism, you're born with the world to come and it's yours to lose. Uh, and as I said, it's very difficult to lose it. Uh, Christianity believes that you're born without the world to come. You're born into a status of um, sin, uh, original sin. And the only way you can acquire the world to come is by belief in you-know-who, belief in JC, Jesus. And so we have a completely uh, 
diametrically opposed view to the Olam Haba. But as I said, the false prophets, by by prophesying falsely, uh, that's one of their punishments. They'll lose their world to come. So now God has dealt with the false prophets um, and not to be outdone. Of course, we live in a world of equality, uh, equanimity, a world of uh, equal opportunity and uh, equality of uh, opportunity and equality of outcome. So the women are not to be outdone here, as well as there being false prophets among the men. Uh, there were some evil women also living in Yerushalayim. And um, God, so to speak, is going to address them now. What's interesting is the false prophets, the males, were addressing the nation as a whole. The women, as we're going to see, uh, were addressing individuals. Uh, they weren't traditional false prophets. They were really machshefas. They were women sorcerers. Um, we'll have a look at uh, the ideas behind sorcery in a minute, but... Uh, Let's just see what God's got to say about uh, the ladies, the wicked ladies of Yerushalayim. Now, we've already already had uh, references to wicked ladies in Yerushalayim before, but in chapter 8, we had the women that were uh, worshipping uh, the god or the uh, false prophet Tammuz outside the base of Migdosh. And, um, uh, but now God really lays into a group of women that lived in Yerushalayim at the time of the first temple that were profiting uh, or profiteering on the superstitions of a very superstitious generation. So he says now in verse 17 and 18, again, verse 17 and 18, they go together as well. But Atta, Ben Odom, new prophecy. He addresses Yechezkel, now son of man, Simponecha el benos amcha, direct your attention towards the daughters, the women. Of your people, Hamisnabos Milibhen, Behinove Alehen. These women who uh, prophesy from their heart, in other words, they make stuff up, and you, Yechezkel, should prophesy about them. But Omarito, and you should say, this is verse 18, but Omarito, and you should say, This is the word of the Lord God. Uh, woe to those women who sew pillows on you know, the atsile yodai, either means the armpits or the elbows uh, of their clients. But also hamispochos al rosh kolkomo, and who are, make veils or or. Um, Veils, I suppose, or scarves to the heads of the people uh, of every height. They got uh, a little hat that their clients wear when they come to visit them. Lutso de nafoshos. They're attempting to trap souls. Hanafoshos tutso de dena. God says to them, "Do you think I laami? Do you think I'm going to allow you to trap the souls of my people?" Unafoshos lechno techayeno. And, uh, and are you, am I going to allow you to do this while you, um, feed your own greed, while you, um, you sustain your own souls? In other words, while you profiteer, charging these, these people that are superstitious and paranoid, uh, coming to you for a service. And we're talking about, um, witches and witches brews and people that look into, uh, crystal balls and tea leaves and reading the palms, this type of stuff. But at the time of the base of Migdosh, it was a different type of uh, art. Uh, and the art revolved around um, these pillows that they used to put on the armpits or the elbows of the clients and the veils or the scarves they used to put on the head of their clients as well. So let's see exactly how this works. Um, just a brief introduction uh today the idea of black magic uh is almost um, entirely practiced by charlatans there are people quite clearly who have some type of gift um some esp extrasensory perception quite clearly um but generally speaking 99.9% of the black magic practitioners or 
you know, the women you see at the fairs reading the tea leaves and uh, crystal balls and all that type of garbage, they're all charlatans in the modern context. Uh, and for the most part, they're scorned and ridicule, ridiculed by uh, most of us rational people. Um, and the reason for that is that the Anshikhanes Zagdola, uh, when the Jewish people came back uh, after the Babylonian exile, which at Yechezkel's time has not taken place yet, uh, we're still five years away from the Babylonian exile, uh, the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile was still five years away. But after the Jews did return from Babylonia, the Anshikhanes Zagdola, uh, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, Mordechai, um, and uh, others uh, like him, Chagai, Zechariah, Malachi, the last three prophets of Israel, 120 of them were in the Anshe Knesset Agdola, which is why the Knesset, the modern-day Knesset, has got 120 seats. Um, so they removed one of the first things they did when they came back to the land of Israel, as, as we've discussed in earlier chapters, is they removed the Yetzirah, the evil inclination for paganism, Prabhupada Zorah. Um, and in doing so, they also removed the art of black magic, or the ability for most people, almost everybody, to practice black magic. Now, uh, the very fact that we call it black magic and everything that goes with it, the names we've got for it, Ovidoni and all this type of thing, the very fact that it's mentioned in the Torah means that there's something to it. There is... The, the, there is the black arts. They are possible. It's just that in today's world, we don't see it. At the time of the base of Migdosh, um, it was quite prevalent. Uh, some of these women had powers, and, but they misused it. And uh, the Torah actually says that anyone that practices this type of art is Chayv Mis. They should be there to be executed. Um now, the problem was when the Anshe Knesset Dola got rid of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination for Avada Zorah, um, paganism and all this type of black magic, um, they also removed as a, as a, um, as a, um, consequence of that, uh, and as a, um, unfortunate consequence of that, prophecy was removed from the world as well. However, before the Anshekanesi Haggadola did that, um, which is about 2,350 years ago, uh, at the time when the first base of Midrash was still standing and the Anshekanesi Haggadola had not been, the men of the Great Assembly hadn't been formed yet because the Jews hadn't returned from the Babylonian exile, there were people that had the power of Kishuf, something we call black magic, uh, Kishuf, uh, sorcery, witchcraft. We know from the Tanakh, the story of... Um, uh, Shaul Hamalach, the first king of Israel, uh, he was worried about a battle and the prophets wouldn't speak to him. So he went to the Witch of Endor, wow, which is one of the most famous stories. There's even been a film about it, Hollywood film about it. Um, and he asked her to bring up the, um, the, uh, uh, to bring back from the dead Shmuel, the prophet Shmuel. So, and even though the Rambam says lo hoya below nivra, it never happened, he's the minority opinion. And the general opinion is that at the time of the base of Migdosh, first, certainly the first base of Migdosh, uh, this thing was alive and well, this type of kishuf, this type of sorcery was alive and well. And it involved using specific words and using particular items, <clears throat> either <clears throat> to divine the future <clears throat> or perform actions that appeared to be miraculous. Now, obviously, in every generation, one man's one man's miracle is another man's science. Um, we have the Rambam himself, Maimonides, writing uh, when he's discussing miracles, uh, uh, something that's beyond the realms of nature. So he describes, if you want to know what a, what a real miracle is, so if you see a ship, a metal ship flying in the sky, that would be a miracle. Now, we, we know that uh, a metal ship flying in the sky is uh, not miraculous at all. It's to do with miracles. It's all to do with lift. It's all to do with uh, physics. And But as far as the Rambam is concerned, if he'd have flown a 747 over the Rambam's head, uh, he would have said it was a miracle. 
And so one man's miracle is another man's science. So I have to be very careful what we uh, attribute to be miraculous. And certainly when we look at, for example, the, the 10 plagues that um, struck the Egyptians, it's quite clear that only four of them were miracles and the other six were um, just exaggerated effects, <clears throat> as exaggerated natural effects that God, so to speak, just is exaggerated a natural effect. And you have a, a plague of uh, locusts. So that's not a miracle. <clears throat> when you have a um, <clears throat> boils and outbreak, we know a, a pandemic is not a miracle. So uh, if you examine the, the 10 plagues carefully, you'll see there were only four miracles. Uh, uh, a miracle is defined in Judaism is where you can clearly see the hand of God um, involved in the uh, event. But <clears throat> these women certainly... <clears throat> had the ability to divine certain elements of the future <clears throat> and perform actions that appeared to be miraculous. Um, the Torah itself, as I mentioned, gives evidence to this, most notably when Moshe came to Paro um, and threw his staff on the ground and it turned into a, state, into a snake. Now, if somebody throws a stick on the ground and it turns into a snake, so the reality is you become, you know, shocked, right? Amazed, shocked, wonderful. Uh, but the Egyptians weren't impressed. And as we see in the book of Shemaus, in the book of Exodus, in chapter 7, verse 11, <clears throat> the Paro summoned these wise men, these magicians, and the sorcerers of Egypt, and they copied the trick. Um and uh, with their own brand of black magic. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Similarly, we have, as I mentioned, at the end of the book of Shmuel, the witch of Endor. Uh, she summoned up Shmuel from the dead <coughs> to bring bad news to King Shaul. Uh, and really, the upshot of all this is that built into the creation uh, apart from the way the Rambam understands it, we'll just leave his opinion aside for a second, but built into the creation are elements of uh, supernatural, elements of magic, elements of sorcery. We know there are such things as angels, such things as Shindalad, Shadim. Um, what has changed in the world is that the skill to be able to perform these actions have been lost. And what we are left with today are charlatans, who claim to be able to read tea leaves, crystals, palms, the stars, and give you information about your future, and even summon, summon up the dead via a seance. And you know, it's all, it's all, you know, it's all nonsense. It's all, it's all uh, the quickness of, as my father would say, the quickness of the hand deceives the eye. But as I mentioned at the beginning of the first temple period, the art of Kishuf was alive and well, and very popular in Yerushalayim. And the interesting thing is that the majority of the practitioners were women. We'll come on to that a bit later. Uh, you very, very rarely find um, in the Tanakh a practitioner of black magic who's not a woman. And these women described in this verse seem to have had specific skills that God is railing about here. As to what is being described in this verse, listen to what Rashi says. Rashi admits no one really knows the divination process employed by these women. And certainly we have no clue how they were doing what they did and where the source of their ability came from. What we know for sure from the verse itself is that these particular women use two particular props, which is what the verse describes. The first prop is Lemisporos Kususos Alkol Atsile Yodai. They sewed cushions or pillows or schmatzes that were attached to either the elbow or the armpit. Now, as Rashi points out, no one's really sure whether these cushions or pillows or schmatzes were attached to the body of the practitioner or the body of the client. It doesn't actually say so in the verse. So we don't know. Uh, the implication from the verse is that it was attached to the client. That was the first thing they used to. That was the first prop. And remember, all, all the charlatans today, they all use props as well. You know, the tea leaves and uh, the palm and uh, and uh, crystal balls and the cards, uh, the tarot cards. Uh, 
even the charlatans today, they have to have props. They don't actually just sit there opposite you at the table and tell you what your future is going to be. They have to have a prop to do it. So these 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 particular witches, witches brew, they also had these props. One of them was this schmatter or a cushion or a pillow, whatever it was. And the other one, the second one was, as the deposit um, describes, the asos hamispochos al rosh kolkoma. They had a little hat. Then they had a one-size-fits-all hat or a veil or a scarf that's put on the head. Again, I'm not really sure whether the veil or the scarf or these hats were placed on the head of the practitioner or the client. Um, the likelihood is it was placed on the head of the client. Again, it should be stressed that no one has really got a clue how the process worked. Uh, but here are the two best guesses. Um, um, just a second. Just give me one second of a break. Apologies. Apologies. Sorry about that. So there are two the two best guesses here uh, about the process here. Um, number one is the opinion of Rashi, the Barbanel, and many other commentators is that they were actually charlatans. And as Rashi writes, the Barbanel writes it in in detail. Uh, the whole thing was the con. They would take these two props, they tie the the pillow and the schmatter, uh, uh, or the uh, the um, cushion on the elbow or armpit of the customer and then placing the veil scarf on the head of the customer and would then divine with these props a false divination a false message a false prophecy about the client and to those whom they wished they would give a favorable uh, prophecy a pray favorable message a favorable divination and to others they would give an unfavorable one how did they choose who got the good news and who got the bad news so simple it was either based on who who the customer or the client was. So if the client was a sinner, was already doing wicked things anyway, they would encourage them to continue on the path that, that they wanted um, um, and say that if you continue down this road, you know, you're a sinner. Not you're a sinner, but you're doing the right thing. You know, paganism is good. Sexual immorality is good. You're on the right path. And if you continue on that path, you've got a bright future. And even advise them to get themselves, get them in the, the customers involved in even more perverted activity uh, if they wanted to improve their situation. If, however, the client was not a sinner and was not involved in any perverted activity, they would strongly discourage them from continuing on the path by delivering an unfavorable message, an unfavorable divination, an unfavorable prophecy, um, and encourage them. Uh, not to behave themselves, not to behave morally. They told these clients that if they wanted a bright future, they should get with the program together with all the other people. And regarding this type of divination, based on the current spiritual status of the client, uh, God says to, asks these women rhetorically in this verse, Hanafoshos tzodadenala ami, a rhetorical question. Do you think that I, God, will let you trap the souls of my people uh, into following your prescribed path of evil? So they were determined, not determined, but they, 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 their, their focus was on the dark side. And if you're on the dark side, so they give you a favor, keep going, keep going. Plenty of incest, plenty of pedophilia, plenty of paganism. Get involved, get with the program, do more. And if you weren't, if you were a decent moral chap that didn't get involved in any of that, they'd tell you, you know, you're on the wrong path, mate. Should be enjoying your life. And and um, if you if you stay on the straight and narrow, you'll have a horrible life. And so God says, so God's message to this type of uh, 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 divination, this type of prophecy, is a rhetorical question. And the fashion to sort of deadline. Do you think God says, do you think I'll let you going to get away with that? That's number one. Uh, alternatively, 
according to this opinion, that they were all um, uh, charlatans, which is, again, the Barbanel and Rashi and others. Alternatively, they would choose who got the good news and who got the bad news based on how much money they were being paid, which, you know, we can understand. That's what it's all about, right? The more you paid, the better the prophecy you received. Um, and regarding this type of divination, based on the financial power of the client, God, through Yecheskel, asks these women rhetorically at the end of the verse, Do you think that I will let you make a living, like let, let, enrich yourselves at the expense of the souls of my people? So you have these women, and uh, either they're doing it out of pure evil, or they're doing it for the money. The more money you pay them, so the better the, better the message, the better the prophecy, the better the divination. Well, we see a similar thing in a Gemara in Brochus, by the way. Uh, with Right at the end of the Gemara in Brochus, those that have learned Brochus in detail, knows that right at the end, in the uh, the last 10 daf of Brochus, you have all these dreams and dream interpreters, what dreams mean, different types of dreams. If you dream about a, a bird, if you dream about a river, if you dream about this, that, and the other, and it tells you, and there were, uh, even at the time of the Amoraim, um there were these types of people that would interpret your, their dreams for you. And obviously, the, be- the, the uh, more money you paid, so the better the message. So if you went in and all you had was, you know, 50 shekels, and, uh, you know, he wouldn't, he'd tell you oh, it's a terrible dream. It's a, it's a, it's a omen of bad things to come. If you pay me a bit more money, maybe I can change the outcome. But if you came and you gave the uh, dream interpreter a thousand shekels, so he'd say, oh, terrific. That dream's fantastic. You're going to have a wonderful life. You're going to win the lottery and all this type of stuff. So you have these women that are doing the same thing. And, um, uh, either they're doing it for the money or they're doing it out of pure evil. Whichever way it is, God says, if you're doing it out of pure evil, uh, I'm not going to let you get away with it, uh, trapping souls, trapping Jewish souls. And if you're doing it for the money, I'm not going to let you make a living out of it. So that's if if you understand <clears throat> this verse, the way the Ababrinel and Rashi and others understand it, that these people were... Um, Kishavmachas, that these people were charlatans. However, however, and this is the most interesting of all, and it comes from a very strange place. It comes from the Malbin, um, which we'll call not the, the the last way of understanding these uh, these women was the charlatans. The Malbin doesn't see it that way. The Malbin, uh, let me pose a question to you, to all those that are listening in. What's what would you say was the significance of the women putting something on the arm of the client and something putting something on the head of the client? Does that ring a bell with anybody? What 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 what? what, what, what sorry, to fill in. Did you say arm arm and the head? The arms and the head. Okay. Now let's see what the Malvin said. I think you're absolutely right. Listen to what the Malvin said. Very unusual that we see Divrei Kabbalah, a Kabbalistic approach of, of the Malvin. And the Malvin says, this is the tefillin factor. Uh, this Kishif, this black magic, um, was all about, it was a very, very powerful form of Kishif. It was a perversion of the power of the tefillin. And this is what he says. He says, Shikmao Sheikh the Kedusha Manichan Tfilin Alayad Kinegat Alayv. Regarding the realm of Kedusha, the Tfilin Shalyad, uh, we put our Tfilin that we put on our arms is placed on the arm directly opposite the heart. Lesha'obad Taibas Umachshavas Alayv Lashem. In order to connect the desires and thoughts of the heart towards the service of God. To be tied to God, umanichim al harosh keneged hamoach, and we put the tefillin rosh on our heads. The tefillin that goes on our head is placed on the forehead, um, in order to connect directly to the power of the intellect, the moach. L'sha'obed koach haseichel v'armachshava elov yisborach, and that is to focus the mind to co- to be continually the, the intellect to be continually thinking about your relationship with God from an intellectual perspective, 
that's the tefillin shell rosh, and the tefillin shell yad is to from an emotional perspective, not from an intellectual perspective, from an emotional and heartfelt perspective, to connect to God. That's the idea of the two set, the two tefillin. One's directly across from the heart. One's directly uh, above the moach, above the intellect. So too, in parallel, these sorceresses, these kishif macher women, sewed a pillow or a shmata or a, some type of uh, item on the arms of their clients where the tefillin shel yad was placed. V'hoyu uh, kosmos. And using unholy power, Shahin Matsodidos, Lashem Nefoshus, Achaim, Shalom, Koach Lavovo, Shayu Shivuyim Tachas Rishuso. They used unholy power. They hunted and captured the souls of these people and ensnared the power of their hearts to be captives under their nefarious control. In other words, they used the power when just there's a an unseen power when you put tefillin on, uh, tefillin shel yad, that, that creates a bond between you, God, and or your heart, your emotions, and God. Um, by doing this action, this kishuf, by putting this item tied onto the arm in the place where the tefillin was, um, they control. They they uh, took control of this person's emotion, this person's heart. Encouraging them, uh, encouraging not to in, in the service of God, but to pursue perverted sexual activity and and uh, and fulfill all their evil desires, which is the total antithesis of the kedusha of the holiness of the tefillin shel yet, and and further, says the Malvin. What about the other ones? The, the the hat they put on the head. And they would make veils or scarves to fit every head, one size fits all, and place it where the tefillin shel rosh was, was placed in order to control their minds. They used their power, um, just like the tefillin shel rosh that you put on your head, creates a connection between your intellect and God and the service of God. So this shmata that they put on their heads, this this lid, this scarf or this veil that they put on their heads did exactly the same thing, but it turned the client's intellectual powers to false rationalizations. Um, to encourage that you would uh, use these these items just like the tefillin created a holy connection to the intellectual power of a human being these schmatters that they put on their heads these hats, these veils created a false or, or a vile, evil uh, connection uh, between the practitioner and the man, the person, the client's intellect, in order that they should deny God and deny the Torah and become heretics. So that's the, and when I read this, I was very surprised. It's not, it's not a typical Malbim here. The Malbim doesn't normally deal with this type of stuff. Anyway, it carries on. Al Harisha, regarding the first, regarding these women that use the pillow and the shmata that these women put on the arms of the client, where the tefillin shell yad is placed, which is, again, designed to turn the hearts and souls of the of the people away from God. On, on this type of activity, God says, rhetorical question. God asks rhetorically, do you re- re- women really think you have that much power to control the soul of my people? Are you really that stupid that you think by putting to fill in shell yet, I will allow you to control the heart, the emotions of my people? And uh, 
do you think that God says, do you think I'm going to allow that? And furthermore, do you really think that I, God, will allow you to make a, a living out of doing that? So uh, here you have God telling these women, this is a Malvim here, and, and again, a very strange Kabbalistic type of attitude. Uh, we know that the Tefillin Shel Rosh or the Tefillin Shel Yad and the Tefillin Shel Rosh have got what, what we would describe as ultimate Kedusha. They are the ultimate, they are the, the pyramid of Kedusha. Um, we know that uh, the Gemara in, in Brochus says that God wears Tefillin, and uh, the Posuk says that uh, when God passed Moshe by, and Moshe saw Me'achora, God saw, Moshe saw God from behind. And the Gemara asked, what did he see? So he said he saw the Tefillin Shel Rosh of a Kodesh Baruch the knot uh, at the back of God's head, so to speak. God wears to fill in. Now, obviously, that uh, this idea that God wearing to fill in is not meant to be taken uh, in physical terms, that God doesn't have a pair of fill in made out of black leather or anything like that. But the idea is that God, so to speak, has got the antenna, so to speak. He's, he wears the to fill in, uh, the spiritual to fill in that uh, is parallel to the physical to fill in that we wear. And that, when we put our tefillin on, that creates some type of spiritual bond. When we put the tefillin shell yad on our arms, that creates a, a bond between us and God uh, in, in terms of emotion and uh, and heart. Uh, and when we put the tefillin shell yad uh, rosh on, that creates a, a powerful bond between us and God, uh, who's wearing his tefillin, so to speak, uh, in terms of the intellect. And uh, again, this goes back to the very creation of humanity, where God is describing Adam's, Adam's, Adam and Chava's job, the job of the human being in this world is for Kibshua, the idea that we're supposed to conquer this world. And um, the way we conquer this world is on two fronts. We conquer this world from the perspective of how, and we, co- we conquer this world from the perspective of why. The perspective of how as I've mentioned in Shirim many times, how is a question of intellect? How did God do that? That's the search of humanity to discover and un- uncover um, science, technology, medicine, uh, uh, human rights, everything that creates a civil society and advances a civil society. That's how we conquer from the perspective of how. How did God do it? How? How is God operating within the universe in, in in terms of science technology how does everything work that's the tefillin shell rosh the tefillin shell yad de- deals with the other question the why question why did god create the universe what's my situation what's my position within the context of the creation where do i fit in what's my spiritual journey what's it how do i map my spiritual journey how far along the road am i who do I need to interact with? How do I relate to God? This is not a how question. This is not a question for the intellect. This is a question for the heart. So when we pull our tefillin on in the morning, what we're doing is we're connecting to God in two ways. We're connecting to God on an intellectual basis to ask or to connect to God so that we should be able to understand the how um, and advance civilization from the perspective of how technology, civil civil liberties, law, medicine, technology, everything that goes with it, art, uh, literature, everything that advances society, that's the Tefillin Shel Rosh, and the Tefillin Shel Yad is next to the heart. So we connect to God to be able to understand, to go on that spiritual search, to find our place in the universe. Why, Why did God create me? What's my purpose here? Those, that's the spiritual search. But these charlatans, they perverted. They had the power to pervert that connection by using these props, as Amalvin points out. And in doing so, instead of the, the client being connected to God uh, on an intellectual and on a spiritual level, um, they were connecting to the dark side, as they would say in Star Wars, 
to the dark side of the force, which of course has to exist. That has to exist for for good uh, to exist. That has to be evil as a counterbalance. If there's no evil, there can't be any good because there's going to be no free will, and everything everybody did would they would have to conform to what would be in, uh, essentially instinctive. You wouldn't be able to do evil. So we need the evil side, but we need to be able to resist it. The power of these women was that they had the power to make the evil side irresistible. And that's what's God's railing against here. And that's what God addresses now uh, in verse 19. And just before we do that, any questions about um, uh, this Kishif and uh, everything else that goes with it? Okay, good. I don't know the answers. Um, <clears throat> so God now addresses these women and he addresses the issues raised by uh, their activities in Yerushalayim. But al-Ami, you have profaned me before my nation. B'shali sa'orim u'vivsosai lecha. Uh, for the sake of a fistful of barley and a morsel of bread. Lahomis nefoshos asherlotumusenu. In order to slay, to destroy souls that were not supposed, that are not supposed to die or that will not die. Belachayos nefoshos and to sustain souls asherlosus sechayena that are not supposed to live. Bechazevchem laami shomekozo. Um, by your lying to my people who listen to your nonsense. So, again, the Malbim here concludes his drosha uh, about the tefillin that belonged in uh, the previous uh, the verse. He says, uh, Regarding the second process employed by these women uh, making veils, and he's now going to talk specifically about the, tef- the tefillin shell uh, rosh, um the uh that we wear and the veils that these women put on the heads of their clients to interfere with the connection between God man and God to pervert it. The second process employed employed by these women sorcerers, making veils and scarves to put where the Tefillinshell Rosh was placed in order to control their minds, to divert their intellect away from the service of God and turn their clients' intellectual powers of thought to false rationalizations in order they should deny God and become heretics. Uh, Omar, he says, to this type of black magic, he tells them, by doing that, you cause the Kedusha of my name, the holiness of my name to be profaned. You women are causing the ultimate Chil Hashem. Now, uh, of all the Abeiras in the Torah, uh, really, uh, people think, you know, Avodah Zorah, the three cardinal sins, Avodah Zorah, which is paganism, Gilead Royos, which is um, uh, immoral sexual activity, perverted sexual activity, and Shvichas Domim, murder. They are the top of the pyramid in terms of crimes committed. But there's one sin above all else, for which there's no Teshuva, the Gomorrah in Yuma, says there's absolutely no teshuva and there's no kapora pechil Hashem, that is the top of the pyramid. So that's what they're being accused of here. That this is the, the greatest chil Hashem, blocking the ability. They, by using these props and doing this kishuv, they are uh, creating a barrier between man and God, uh, man and his creator, a Jew and his religion and the things he should be thinking about which is what i've just been discussing with you the high how and the why and as a result of that there's no greater to cause a human being to be separated to be disconnected from god and he says in this verse as a malbin and you, you do this for the sake of money fistfuls of barley and morsels of bread uh, uh, and the, the, you're talking about the people in Yerushalayim uh, they're under siege so they've got very little cash they can't pay their bills 
So you, you, you're prepared to take the last bit of food from them. The last fistful of barley, which is generally speaking uh, animal food, and the last morsel of bread, you've got no scruples. You'll take, you'll take the, the, the last penny out of their pockets just in order to pervert them away from doing teshuva, from connecting to God. And by doing so, uh, you think you have the power to kill the souls of righteous people. And as the Possek says, your goal is to destroy souls that are not destined to be destroyed. You know, the people, people are on the good path and you're perverting them so that uh, they're destined, they should be living a happy life uh, on the right path. And you're perverting them and trying to kill them. And on the other hand, and you're promising life. You're using the Kishif to try and extend the life of people that are already on a terrible path, trying to preserve the life of people that commit adultery, people that uh, kill people, people that uh, worship idols. So your, your, your modus operandi, your, your approach is get rid of all the righteous people and do, do as much damage as we, damage as we can to the righteous people and get them killed and do as much as we can to protect the wicked people so that they're not killed. Or straightforward. You poison the Jews by rationalizing to them with intellectual arguments um, that they can remain Sadiqim and continue the right path. Uh, if they do that, then they'll die. But Allah will show him and you rationalize the idea of wicked, uh, the idea to the wicked people with intellectual arguments that only if they continue down the path of evil will they live. And the reality is that it's all a lie. You're lying to my people. You, you're causing righteous people uh, to be, or you're cursing righteous people. Not clear what uh, the language, what, what the Marvin means here, uh, but you're certainly lying to the righteous, uh, encouraging them to leave the, the correct path. Otherwise, they'll die and frightening them with that. And you're encouraging the wicked to carry on what they're doing and go even further down down that road and telling them that's the route to life. Um, so, so that's the, that's all in all, that's the opinion of, that's the opinion of the, uh, the uh, Malbim in these two verses. So it's all about powerful Kishif. Um, and, um, and this powerful Kishif uh, has an effect because, you know, if you, just to, just to pause for a second, if you're a righteous person, but uh, you know, uh, you hear somebody somebody comes to you and they give you a you know uh, uh, pointed out that this woman's got powers and she's got uh, she can see in the future and she tells you you know if you can be sticky carry on going to shul you're going to be dead in in a, in a month or you're going to be dead in a year so it doesn't matter how righteous you are and how good you are and how you know it's going to have an effect on you you're going to be thinking about it because you know these women have got reputations. And people say, oh, look, she's condemned this guy to death. It can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so these women were doing tremendous amount of damage. That's according to the Malbim, who says that these these women really did have these types of powers. And they could influence people, and they encouraged the wicked, and they discouraged people that uh, wanted to do um, uh, carry on in the evil ways. That, uh, that had been going on in Yerushalayim for hundreds of years. Alternatively, going back to the Abarbanel and Rashi, if you look at these women as uh, complete charlatans, what's going on here is that these women, apart from the tricks that they did using their props to predict the future for you, based on how much you paid them, uh, etc., which we discussed before in the previous posse, um, or how much uh, you know they wanted you to be uh, to change direction. Apart from that trick, <clears throat> um, 
says the These women further profane God's name. How did they do that? As an added service at the end of the prophecy for a few extra bucks, uh, they'd read the, you, you bring them, it, it, it was a, another trick, another prop, that you'd bring them you, you, the bread, the crumbs from your breakfast, and they'd read them for you. They'd read your future in the crumbs of the bread, just like, uh, you know, the gypsies read the future through tea leaves. These women would tell the customers um, that she could arrange for people that the customer didn't like to die early and arrange for people they like to have an extended life, which is, uh, you know, a great subsidiary auxiliary service. Like you didn't have to just go to them for to find about the future. You would go to them and say, you know, um, I'm having a dispute with, you know, Mr. Smith. Or with Moshe Pipik, you know, I'd like you to arrange for him to die early, and etc. Uh, etc. Et uh, and says the, the above now here, to which God says, "You deliver blatant lies, nonsensical predictions to my people, and they they're foolish enough to believe all your irrational and ridiculous forecasts." So there's various ways of looking at this, either that. Either there's, what they were saying was correct. I mean, what they're saying was uh, based on proper Kishif and they had powers uh, like the powers, they, so like so to speak, as the Marvin says, the dark side of the tefillin, or they were just um, cashing in. They were charlatans cashing in on the on uh, the paranoia and the superstition um, that was uh, very very prominent in Yerushalayim. In the last years uh, leading up to the destruction, they're cashing in on it. And those are the two ways of understanding what these uh, women were all about. Um, uh, uh, but there's, there's a Gomorrah here that we have to, to deal with. Um, and it's a Gomorrah in Erevin, a very difficult Gomorrah to understand. Those who learn Erevin know that Erevin is a very difficult Gomorrah in the first place. But the Agadita there is even more difficult. <clears throat> And there's a Gomorrah, we've had these two opinions. We had the opinion of Barabinel about these women, that they, they're all charlatans and they were cashing in. Uh, uh, not only they were cashing in with money, monetary wise, but they were cashing in on driving people down the wrong path. And we have the opinion of Barabinel that it, this was very, very powerful Kishif, very, very powerful black magic. And uh, that what they were doing was the ultimate Chilvashe. But there's a Gomorrah we have to deal with. Uh, I'm going to have to leave it for next time. Uh, it's a Gemara. People, if if you want to look it up, it's a Gemara in Erevin on Daf Samach, but Samach Dalit on page 64b. Uh, very, very difficult Gemara to understand. I'll try and unravel it for you uh, next time. That deals with this business of the barley and the bread. What the heck's the barley and the bread? Now, we mentioned before that there's an opinion here that if there were charlatans, they were cashing in. This was an extra service. They you just like, you know, they read the tea leaves. They'd read the, you bring the crumbs and they'll read the, the crumbs and tell you what's going to happen uh, in the future. Uh, as an added, you know, you pay an extra 50 bucks and you can you can have your uh, you can have your crumbs read. Now, to us, it seems uh, a, a ludicrous proposition. But in a highly paranoid society, this is what people went for. Um, but there's this idea of the Shale Sa'orim. Um, exactly what it means, the fistfuls of barley and the morsels of bread. Um, we've got to go into that a little, little more deeply, uh, which we will do, please God, next week. Please God, either next week or the week after, depending on my uh, recovery. Um, in the meantime, I would invite questions. Anybody who's got any questions, now's the time. Uh, we've gone over time again, which uh, you know I'm, I'm prone to do. If anybody's got any questions, on Kishif, I can't give any practical uh, advice. Uh, if you want to become a Kishif Macha, if you want to become a witch, first of all, you most of you are on the wrong sex. Uh, there's Esther over there, but um, the rest of you, you can forget about it. It's a women's profession, as we'll see next week. There's a reason why women are particularly uh, involved in this type of uh, profession and not the men. Um, so... I can't give you any, as a man myself, I can't give you any advice. If you want to do a bit of black magic, you want to find out 
the football scores for next week. Um, I don't know. I don't know how to do help you help you with that. Um, but if anybody's got any questions on what we discussed today, now's the time. Perry, can't you be woke and say you're a woman? I identify as a Kishav Macha. <laughs> uh, yeah, but only two days a week. Yeah, I, I could do that as well. And probably probably get a government grant for it in the United States, especially in California and New York. Um, in any event, I wish you all a wonderful week. Uh, we should only hear good news from our soldiers, from our emergency staff and from our... Um, uh, oh, there's a question here. Gee, where's the question? The question. Who's asking a question? Football. Oh, no. It's uh, Erwin Posen telling you what the football scores were. Telling us what the football scores were. Okay. Um, again, we should only hear good news and it should be a good week for Israel. And uh, forgive me if I say it even on tape. You know, forget every, forget the rest of the world. We're interested in Israel. We're interested in the Jewish people. For the time being, that's our primary focus. And let's just uh, ignore what the rest of the world think and what the rest of the world say. And rely on Avinu Shabbat Shomayim, Sim Shalom Ba'aretz. And on that note, I'll leave you. Have a great week. Shavuot Tov and And I'll see you, hopefully, please God, next week. Kol to everybody. Thanks, Eddie. Kol Tov.